Welcome to the World Football Summit podcast, the show for football industry leaders who want to stay ahead of the game. We bring you the latest insights, trends, and stories from the experts driving innovation and progress in sports business worldwide. Join us as we dive deep into the ideas and initiatives transforming the world of football. From sustainability and innovation to player development, fan engagement, and everything in between. Our goal is to unite the global football industry and drive positive change and progress. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. Today, we have a fun episode aligned for you as we welcome Casper Cronenberg, Editor-in-Chief and Co-Founder at Off The Pitch, one of the best football business intelligence services and databases in the world. If you're into club valuations around the world, including Europe, the MLS, Saudi Arabia, women's football, and topics related to governments, this is an episode you do not want to miss. But that's not all. We also talk about the origins of the business, entrepreneurship, lessons Casper has learned over the course of his career. This one has it all. Before we go into it, though, don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your industry colleagues. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, where every week we send updates, trends, and everything that goes on at our events. You can find the link in the show notes. And by the way, next year, it's going to be a busy one for World Football Summit, as we have events in London, Mexico, Sevilla. You can check it all out on our website. Nothing else from my side. Now, enjoy this conversation with Casper Kronenberg. Casper. Well, we finally made this happen. I want to welcome you to the World Football Summit podcast. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we met for uh, World Football Summit Europe in Sevilla. So it's a great way to finish the year. So welcome. Thanks so much, Jaime. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, I think people out there are going to know who you are. But just in case someone is you know, a little bit distracted today, I was wondering if you could briefly introduce yourself and more importantly, can you tell us why is it that you do what you do? Yeah, my name is Casper Kronberg. I'm the uh, editor-in-chief at Off The Pitch. And uh, why do we do what we do? Uh, me and my co-founder, Mess, we, we started the company uh, five years ago because we thought there were a, a scope for a, a business-oriented uh, specialized media in the, in the football industry. Uh, we thought that there needed uh, there was a need for someone being non-biased, trying to stick to the facts. So we did this this newsletter uh, on a daily basis, and today, yeah, most of our business is actually from the the business, or you could say the business intelligence tools that we also providing. So I guess it's also a story about how it often goes when you start a business, you start. Uh, in one place, and then suddenly you're doing something a little bit different. But we still have the new standards, and we, we like them very much. Yeah, five years ago. And um, yeah, today you first financial and operational data, I would say, from, from I think it's 300 clubs, more or less, 80 leagues, um, 5,000 players. I mean, uh, cross 10 leagues. I mean, how how has all this data gathering evolved over the years. I'm curious to know. Yeah, yeah. actually, to, to be frank, it was, you could say it was a coincidence that we sort of turned this into a business because for a start, you know how it works when you're a reporter, you need to do your research. And we, yeah, we started to collect all these financial reports from 
yeah, various clubs. And uh, when we, yeah, so we would say we had to do that research anyways. What we found out when we approached clubs, leagues, other sources that we talked to quite often, they sort of, they didn't have this overview. They were not sort of comparing themselves to other clubs. Uh, are you being profitable? Are you having a decent growth? What about the depth levels? All sorts of things. And then we just found out, and it wasn't me, it was actually my, my co-founder, Mess, who did it. He said, well, maybe there's a, a business opportunity here because, I mean, we have the data anyways. We have collected it all. So maybe we should start to, to uh, sell it to the customers. And we did that already four and a half years ago. And, and now it's, yeah, by far our, our biggest uh, revenue driver. Oh, is it? Okay. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, uh, out of the different uh, data that you collected, first one, maybe not in terms of revenue, but wh which one was the one that created more interest uh, from people from the industry? So, Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think for a start, we were really focused on financial data. We sort of, yeah, went through all the accounts and that was sort of where, where it all started and that was where we came from. But... Um, yeah, actually, what we found out uh, was the fact that you know how it works in football clubs. What are the key assets? It's the players. And we had sort of tried to stay away from that because we actually take the name off the pitch rather seriously. We do know that things on the pitch, it's important. You need to focus on results and the players, how they perform, etc. But my point is there are so many other businesses within uh, technical data. So we, we didn't sort of want to interfere with that. We don't think we can compete with that. But what we found out was the fact that, okay, where do clubs really make money? Where could we really make a difference? And that is when they do transfers. And when you try to predict, okay, what's the value of X player? So, so that's where we can see, yeah, you could say the majority of growth today is that when clubs are going to do better uh, preparations, when they're going to do transfer due diligence, Obviously, they need data. I mean, if you just, yeah, if you just call an agent or you do call the, the, the uh, you could say, the, the guy you're going to talk to in the next club, you can do that, but, but you need to prepare yourself. You need to look into data. And that's what yeah. the more and more clubs are doing. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship later, but I mean, that's the first uh, lesson for sport entrepreneurs. There, no? You had a hypothesis. You didn't want to go into player data. Then you go out there. You realize that your, quote, unquote, target is interested in that data and but you know you have to start developing it right so exactly exactly and 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 in that sense i mean please share whatever you want to share because i'm curious now that we're talking about entrepreneurship uh, what has been key to acquire let's say new customers for the platform and 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 maybe not only acquire them but also retain them at the end of the day but that's what uh, guarantees growth yeah i say uh, in terms of retaining the customers and uh, this shouldn't sort of sound uh, like like me bragging, but actually our churn rates are really low, so we don't have a big problem with that. I mean, in terms of the the customers receiving the newsletters, the the churn rates are really low, and the same with the data. But frankly, in the in the football business, you know how it is. It's it's a network business, so it's very important who you know. And we when we started this company five years ago, I we knew we didn't know anyone. We really started from scratch. We've been doing uh, business journalism for many years. We had a great network in, in Denmark and the Nordic region. But when we came to London, I mean, we didn't know anyone. We, uh, Rasmus Ankersen from 
at that time being with Brentford. He was really kind to, to, to meet us and then we had a chat with him, but we had to do it all from scratch. And also, you know, if you go to a club's website, you want to be in touch with someone, the CEO or the chairman of the board, there's not an email address, there's not a phone number and oh, no. communications departments, you know, they, 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 uh, uh, yeah, they're not always really helpful. And I'm not saying this to, to, to be rude towards them, but, but they sort of protect the executive. Yeah. So to build that network, that was sort of the, the, the tough part. Yeah. Now we've been in business for five years. We know quite a few people out there, so it's, it's much more easy. But I mean, if we could have that network that we have now from day one, yeah, that would have been a real beauty. Definitely. I always uh, say that to the people who want to enter the industry at the end of the day. No, you you have to build like a strong network, but that takes time. At the end of the day, you have to be out there uh, sharing content, being at events, um, just really putting yourself out there. But you can't expect magic results. No, it's, it's, it, it, it compounds over time, I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and exactly when, when you start a business, you know, what you don't have a I guess you do have it, but but what would you feel that you don't have is time. So you feel that every time you do something, when you attend a, a conference, whatever it is, you feel that, okay, I need to build some business here. But if you do that too hard, if you push too hard, and that's all you want to do, you want to send out invoices, don't do that. I mean, be polite, be gentle, be take it easy. If you yeah. are, if you have a strong product, if you uh, have a real interest in people, at some point, you're going to do business with them, obviously, if you have a great product. But don't push too hard because you need to be patient. So you're spot on. I agree. I mean, uh, it sounds cliche, but at the end of the day, you have to add value first before actually getting people to, you know, uh, buy your service. So, yeah, um, exactly. and as, um, you know, we, we also have our newsletter. I'm going to ask a question that is, I admit, it's going to be only for my benefit, probably, um, unless someone out there who's listening also has their own newsletter. Are there any tips you would share to grow uh, a newsletter? Because your newsletter is fantastic, you know, and I was just wondering, you know. Yeah, thanks a lot. I think the the key thing here would be to be consistent. I mean, you need to be stable. I mean, when you've told people they're going to send out a newsletter every morning at 7 a.m., you have to do it. I mean, I think maybe it sounds ridiculous. It sounds a little bit too too easy, but but quite often you see media. Some days they're really uh, sending out all sorts of stories, doing a great coverage of things. But then along the way, you know, they, they sort of lose sights of what they want to do. They lose sort of the enthusiasm. But if, if you are going to do something, you have that sort of promise to your readers. You're going to do it every day. You're going to give you that overview uh, every morning. And, 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 and uh, I think the key thing would be to respect your readers' time. I mean, often reporters and journalists, they think that every people, they get up every morning to read newsletters, newspapers, watch television for one or two hours every day. But it doesn't work that way, you know. They don't have time to do that. They, they are busy guys. They're busy uh, men and women. They need to get an overview quickly. So if you can build a newsletter, they, people can get an overview and maybe a little bit of inspiration within two or three minutes, then you you have accomplished a lot. But respect the time. I like that. Respect the reader's time. That's such a simple advice, but it's hard to, you know, hard to embrace, I guess, right? But but it's a good one. Anyway, Casper, um, 
there's so many things to talk about. I mean, the industry is just, uh, there's so many um, realities, dynamics going on that I thought it was a great opportunity to bring you on and, and touch upon different topics. Um, first off, I mean, not that, I think it was a, a few weeks ago that it was the UK government that, that uh, announced that it was ready to approve the role of the famous independent regulator, right? Um, so what are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's going to accomplish its role of uh, you know, monitoring everything related to the profitability of English football? I must say uh, I'm a little bit skeptical, but, but as you said in the beginning, in this industry, you really need to be patient. And I would say in terms of the independent regulator in the UK, I think we actually wrote about this, uh, if not the very first day when we sent out the first newsletter, then within a few months, I mean, they've been talking about this for so long. And I know it was sort of confirmed that it's going to happen in the King's speech. I think it was one month ago. Yeah, more Still, we, we haven't had anyone appointed yet. The organization hasn't been built. So we are still waiting to see how is this going to play out. And, and I think another crucial point here talking about this independent regulator. I mean, when you read about the things they want to do and the power that this regulator should have, it sounds great. However, in the UK, there's a big tendency that clubs, institutions, private people, they go to court all the time. So I have a feeling that often you're going to see the independent regulator demand something. They, they, they want to sort of uh, set an example uh, in, in all sorts of areas within club management and financial regulation. But I, I, I find it hard to see that clubs are going to accept the decisions yeah. over and over again. So I think they're going to take the in independent regulator to court again and again and again. So I think it's going to be some lengthy uh, discussions, some lengthy uh, processes because that's how they do it in the UK. If you disagree about small things, you go to court and it's going to take forever. Yeah, probably. And I'm wondering, um, not too long ago also was this ruling um, with, with Everton, right? Um, getting the 10-point deduction. Do you think um, the role of an independent regulator would have helped avoid such, a, such an issue? Yeah, I think it, it's a good question because you could say when you when when you it, when you read the king's speech, and you where they highlighted, okay, this is how we're going to do it. This this is the whole purpose of this regulator. Then you would say, okay, if they really ha are going to give them real power, they can do things. Obviously, they would have told Everton three, four, five years ago, okay, guys, you need to stop spending so much money on transfers and on wages. So if they're going to, to get substantial power, yes, then it's going to work. But my, my point, like I said before, is that I have a feeling that when this independent regulators are going to tell X club that they're going to behave in a different way uh, yeah, in, in all sorts of areas, these clubs are going to say, no, 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 you can't do that. We're going to charge you on that decision. We're going to take it to court. And then the court system is going to work. So I, I find it hard to see that they're going to build, you could say, a, a very efficient uh, organization that can help with these things. But hopefully uh, my, my skepticism will be proved wrong. Yeah. No, but I know what you mean. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's just a matter of, okay, let's put someone in there and everybody's going to 
comply and, and be fine with it, right? There's going to be some challenges. Um, and one of the issues here is, is, or one of the critiques against football clubs has been their lack of transparency, you know, with everything that has to do with the results. Um, but I'm wondering, is there any league property, doesn't have to be in England in general, that you think is a good example of, of being transparent and responsible with, with its accounts? In terms of the accounts, actually, that now we are talking about the, the UK market or the, the English clubs, their financial reports, they are very thorough. I mean, you, you, can, you can easily get the accounts and when mm -hmm. you read them through, you can, you can really see, okay, where do they make money? How much is match day revenue? How much is, is uh, merchandising? How much is TV money, etc. So these accounts are, are really good. Uh, you start, start to get problems, for instance, in Germany. Some of the accounts are pretty solid and they are transparent, but often you won't find the, yeah, many details about how they run their business. So, so I would say the UK, it's, it's great. In the Germany, not so great. And uh, many smaller leagues, it's uh, almost impossible. I guess because um, the reason there could be that you know, the pressure to deliver results on the pitch kind of like leads you to making poor decisions off it. And then you realize you made a poor decision. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm not going to be transparent about this. But in your view, do you think this gap between what happens on the pitch and off the pitch can be reduced? Actually, I think we are seeing a, a, a very positive uh, change in that sense. I understand your question because yeah, quite often we see uh, poor management decisions, we, we do see some, some very poor accounts. Uh, actually, today we, we, uh, we published an analysis. Uh, I think uh, we've seen around 40 financial accounts from the 2022-2023 season. They've been published and we, we took a look at these accounts and saying, okay, what are the trends? Are clubs in a better place in terms of profitability, growth? Uh, wages to revenue and the, the clear overall picture where the clubs are improving things. Still, you have the problem that when you have revenue growth of, I think it was 9 or 10% on average, then in the past, you saw the wages, yeah, they grew even faster. Obviously, that's, that's not too great, but actually we saw wages to revenue uh, uh, ratios improve. So, so things are going in the right direction. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I guess it's a big question because why is this happening? I think the key reason is the change of ownership you see around Europe. That's one thing. The other thing is that you see, uh, yeah, that you could see that the, the, the quality of the management teams running clubs around Europe are simply better people, are better educated. They know that they want, they need to run a football club like you run every other business. Yeah. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you just hired the, the right winger, the former captain or something like that. And they might be able to do a great job, but today the businesses are much more complex. So you need, you need proper education and proper knowledge. Yeah. I think there is a, a trend towards becoming more professional and it's something that we also believe in our World Football Summit, right? That, you know, we need to go, um, we need clubs to start embracing more professionalization, more um, commitment to being financially sustainable at the end of the day. No? And speaking about ownership, Casper, um, um, I wanted to ask you this, and I think it's a good segue because um, at last year we ran a survey at World Football Summit about multi-club ownership. 
Um, and that was defined by many professionals who participated in the survey as, as kind of like the optimal ownership model. No? Um, and today you see it all over the place pretty much and, and you see rumors of even uh, seeing more in, in the near future. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, like yourself and like everyone else, yeah, I see this development as well. And it's it's actually a big number now that when you, when you see how many clubs are part of a multi-club ownership, obviously it depends on the definition. But, um, and I, I really don't, uh, want to sound too skeptical about many things, but I am a little bit skeptical about this model because, frankly, I don't think we've seen sort of too many great examples of of multi club ownerships uh, playing out too great. I mean, you could always say, okay, City Football Group, they are doing a fairly good job. Yes, they are well run club. They've won, I don't know, incredibly uh, amount of titles the last couple of years, but. Uh, diving into that, I mean, what about all the other clubs in, in, in their, their multi-club ownership? How are they doing? I know Chirona right now are doing really good in Spain, yeah. so that's also a good example. And maybe, maybe this is actually what it's all about. Maybe I need to be a little bit more patient and, and, and wait, let's wait out to, to, to have a strong opinion on these types of ownership and let's wait and see three, four, five years how it's all going to, to, to play out but, but for now, what I've seen, I'm not impressed uh, with, with how these clubs are being run. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about whether these clubs are winning things, whether some of them, they might be regu- uh, relegated. It's okay. But on the business side of things, are they building a solid business? Do we see revenues growing, uh, solid uh, ratios on, on, on uh, turnover uh, and, and wages? And I haven't really seen that yet so I'm a little bit skeptical, uh, but let's see in three, four years' time whether 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 they can do it. But I understand. I mean, that you're being skeptical because I would say that a lot of people say what I mean. The, the goal of an investor really maybe it's not so much making it a mm, sustainable club in the long term, rather making a profit uh, so they can then later sell it again. So. I guess this begs the question, do you believe that any form of institutional investor is good for the sport? Um, again, because it seems they want more to maximize return on their investment rather than making the club sustainable in the long run. Yeah, yeah, I see your point, but, but I, in that sense, I must say, I, I, I do believe it's, it's, it's a positive trend that we see uh, institutional money coming into football. I do believe that that when you have a business mindset, when you look at the the entity you've bought as a business like 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 a, all others then you are going to improve that club and by improving the finances you're also going to improve the sporting results so so i don't i i i don't sort of share that skepticism that if you have a a institutional investor coming in it could be a private equity fund then they're going to sort of strip strip this club from everything change everything, the fans are going to be to, to be against it, and then when they're going to sell it, uh, there's nothing left because that's what's all about. If they don't manage to sell the club to a higher price, then they haven't created any value because yeah. we need to remember that in football, you there, there are hardly any clubs paying dividends. Yes, you've seen it in Manchester United, but I mean, I can't mention too many other club, clubs doing that. So they really need to build something sustainable in the long term in order to get the return. 
uh, back. Uh, and that's where I can be a little bit skeptical whether you could say the, the, the money being paid for clubs now, what could you call it, premium, uh, premium prices. I mean, these prices are rather hefty, so can they get their money back or can they get a decent return on these investments? I'm a little bit more skeptical on that. But the fact that these money coming in, I think it's going to, to, to make an, a positive impact in, in football. Could be. I was, I was having a similar conversation with Onmish on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and basically what you know, he was saying, he made a good point. At the end of the day, these are businesses. And what does a business do? It creates value, but then it needs to capture value. And I think the role of an investor here is going to help not only put financial resources, but then help these clubs embrace that, right? So your business, you have to create value for all your stakeholders, but then also capture it so you can grow sustainably, right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. And in that sense, um, another topic that I wanted to discuss, I mean, is about club valuations because you guys do an awesome job uh, looking at, at how much um, these, these clubs are rising in valuation. And, and you have seen all over the place, really all over the world, how these have risen dramatically. Um, and, and it's basically because of the increase, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the expert here, but, but it seems it's, it's because of the higher uh, multiples, um, right, that, that are being delivered. Um, so I'm wondering, well, is that true? And second, is this a, a sustainable trend? Is this going to keep over time or, or are we at risk of, of seeing that stop at some point? Yeah, obviously uh, it, it depends what, what, what uh, club we're looking at because there are some, I guess there are some, some, some really good buys out there where you could say, for instance, Newcastle. I guess you could say that, that the, the, the price they paid for that asset, I think it was a very good price. And I think yeah. that if they are going to at some point, uh, sell sell this yes that club, and they're going to have a new ownership. I have a feeling that uh, they're going to have a really solid return. But then there are other clubs where you where, where you could be more skeptic skeptical because obviously every time there's there's being paid these premium prices, it's because there are predictions that okay in the future revenues are going to grow, and especially people have a tendency to think okay the broadcasting. In numbers, they're going to continue to rise. We're going to see clubs uh, making much more revenues on digitalization. I mean, yep. selling all sorts of digital projects to fans. And it might happen. It might turn out that this is a really profitable area. This is uh, undiscovered ter territory. And, and, and that these new investors, they can actually help executives to build, you could say, a fourth or a fifth a revenue pillar. But I am, I must say, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. So I think overall, the, 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 the premium prices we are seeing being paid, I'm skeptical that when you see the next wave of ownership changes in four, five, six years' time, I'm convinced that quite a few of these investors, they're going to lose money. And they should be happy if they get all their money back. They're not going to yeah. make a great return. There are just things that are... At least they make you wonder. So, for example, you, look, you you mentioned Newcastle. I think it was valued, well, you probably know this better than me, but I think it was somewhere between, it was either 400 million or 600 million or something like that. But then you look at a club like LAFC from the MLS um, and, and nothing and no critic there, obviously, uh, because, you know, it's a good business. I think it was valued at 1 billion. Um, but when you compare the legacy of the clubs and, and the competitions they're being uh, playing, I mean, at least it makes you wonder. It's just that, you know, yeah. not, not a critic there. 
Yeah, yeah, I, t- I totally get it. And, and you could say, look at these numbers; it doesn't really, it doesn't really make much sense. But I think, I mean, when you look at this, I think they say it's important to look at. Okay, there's such a big difference between English football and English football culture and history, and mm-hmm. the things we see in the US. Because in the US, why were these clubs invented? I mean, how did they all start? There's a reason why they call it franchises. I mean, yeah. they are businesses. They are built like businesses. So I, I, I know what you mean, Jaime. When, when you look at these these numbers, you, you say, okay, how are they ever going to get a return on this investment when revenues are so, relatively speaking, low? Mm. But on the other hand, I'd say, okay, but, but, but this club and this league and everything they do all over the States, they want to build businesses. They want to grow yeah. things. So um, you could say they're all in the same boat. You know, they are aligned. We need to keep the league growing. And I think that's 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 really important. And if you go to the UK, you have all sorts of ownership types. Yeah. You know, I know you could say, okay, but if they want them all to be financially sustainable, so at some point they need to make money. But there's just a culture within American clubs that we need to grow, we need to make money. They, they, they are not they are not ashamed to talk about profits. They're not ashamed yeah. to talk about dividends, you know. They eat it for breakfast. They talk about it all the time. So there's just a, a culture of moving things forward. And obviously, they like football, they, they like the game as yeah. well, but there's a big difference to Europe. So I, I just have a feeling that they they are going to, to, to succeed somehow to, to, uh, to uh, yeah, uh, a return even though the prices look look yeah really high but that's a good point um they're aligned and and they have a very clear vision in in the united states about you know what the goal is which is actually growing the league versus um just growing one team here or there and, and a good example of that is when when inter miami um was rumored to be acquiring messi i think there was a conversation there around the calendar and say okay we don't know if this is going to happen but if that, if it does happen Probably they knew much more than you and I, right? But they said, okay, let's shift the calendar in a way that Messi on this, that Inter Miami plays the second half of the season in major markets like New York, like uh, Los Angeles. You know what I mean? So if that eventually ends up happening, which it did, we're going to make sure that Messi visits the bigger markets, you know? So, so yeah. that's a good example. Yeah, exactly. Right? But that, that's a good example of how they do it. You know, that's how they think, okay, we, we, they, they probably paid freely money. I don't know the paycheck of Messi in Miami, but you know, it's quite a bit, so, but instantly, I know, at the very first meeting, they start to discuss, okay, how are we going to make money on this? What can we do? And, 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 and you know, you've seen many sports franchises just uh, moving to another city. They don't care about that, you know. So, so, so they, they, they are less, I would say, they have much more flexibility to do things within each club and also the clubs together because they have the same goal. Yeah, agreed. Um, and then another key thing there is there's no relegation, as everybody knows, right? And when yeah. you look, for example, at, at what happened with uh, the 49ers acquiring Leeds, I believe there was a big discount in the valuation of, of Leeds just because they were relegated. And I think it was about $400 million, uh, I think it was, in, in any case, regardless of the number. Do you think the fact that being that, that there's a relegation system in place or not um, is enough to justify those differences in valuation? I think specifically talking about the, the Leeds United takeover and, and if I don't know whether these numbers have been confirmed uh, anywhere that there was such a huge discount 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with you. If the discount was 400 million just because they were relegated, it's it's a really, really big discount. And it doesn't really, at least from the seller's point of view, it doesn't really make sense. On the other hand, maybe as I understood it, the seller, he really wanted to get out. So, so, so he was, yeah. I don't know whether he was forced to sell, but sometimes, you know, deals do take place due to reasons that we don't really understand. I would say that if it was another uh, English side, smaller team. I mean, Leeds is a big club. It's a big city. They have massive support. Uh, so I would say you could argue that they are probably going to go back to the premiership within one, two, three yeah. years time. And then that discount does make sense. If it was a smaller club, it could be Huddersfield. Then you could say, okay, you've just lost your Premier League status. Are you going yeah. to be uh, promoted again? Well, we're not really certain. The price needs to go down. Yeah, I agree. It depends on the context of each club, right? Um, yeah. And what about women's football, Casper? I mean, you, you see evaluations there, uh, especially when you look at the uh, NWSL, no? Um, I think average valuation is like 66 million. Um, but just a couple of years ago, not so long ago, Angel City um, or San Diego, they paid, I think it was expansion fees of somewhere between two to five million, right? So the, the difference is huge. Um do you think that is sustainable? Is is that is it going to keep increasing even more? Yeah, uh, yeah, I definitely think it's 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 going to increase. I was so lucky to 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 meet the one of the club owners or one of the club executives at, at your event in Sydney yep. earlier this year uh, that you hosted, and, and and she told me about the way they work. Uh, and I mean, I was I must say I was really impressed. Uh, I haven't been at the stadium. I haven't watched women's football in the US. But in terms of having a business mindset, in terms of really always sort of pushing your organization, always delivering growth, I mean, it was, there was just such a big difference talking to her and talking to, you could say, European executives, because often they talk about football a lot. You know, they, they really like the game, they really like football. And I'm not saying that they, the, the CEO from Angel City that she she doesn't like football. I'm I'm certain that she loves football, but but the 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 first thing she's thinking about every morning is how do you grow this business. So I must say I'm really impressed with the things they do in the US. And I think another point here would be that why do they make why do they create so much value? Because mm-hmm. these entities are like startups. I mean that they they have investors behind them and they need to, to fight to survive and they need to fight to, to create a solid return in the UK and in most other countries in Europe. We know, all know how it works. They are part of an organization that yeah. is already there. So they are always fighting for budgets, you know, in Manchester United, even though they're playing budget for the women's team is big, but, but you also know how it works when the board is meeting, okay, how much money are we going to spend on the men's team and on the women's team? There's always this, this battle for resources, and they are not simply not being shown enough interest in, in, and enough money to grow it. So I think you could see the same growth rates in Europe if these entities, if these businesses were sort of taken away from the mothership yeah. and we run like independent uh, businesses. Then you could see something. We've just seen it with the, this American owner who bought a, a team in the development. I think it was uh-huh. a couple of days ago. I think you should uh, pay uh, clo- uh, close attention to that team because I think they're going to do something great because that's her only focus. She doesn't care yeah. about the men's team. 
she wants that team to perform and grow. And I think she's going to do. Yeah, but to your point, I think it, it, it's not the same when you do a spin-off of a club, which is what they do in Europe, versus building your own club. And when you look at, um, at Angel City, they, they have very clear ideas, and which is why they're doing well. They focus on the business. They focus on their purpose, their community. I mean, they have very clear... Yeah, the, the performance side, of course, is there. But there's just such... They're built them being more than a club or being a brand play, if you will. Oh, I, I just need to have a women's football team and I just put some resources just to see how that goes, right? There's, there's a lot more... Exactly. Yeah. Now, let's travel to Saudi Arabia. Let's start to the other side of the world. Um, because, I mean, no one... Um, can hide from the fact that they're investing so much in developing football there in the region, right? Um, so when you look at the um, current market value of the Saudi Pro League, I think it's around 800 million, or at least that was the number like a few months ago. Um, but they want to increase this to 2.1 billion by 2030, right? And 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 they want to increase um, commercial revenue from like 120 million to 400 million by the same time, right? Um, do you think this is a realistic um, goal or goals to have? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it is, and and I I do understand that that um, some people might be a little bit skeptical whether they can actually do it, and whether they are ever going to succeed building a profitable league or a financially sustainable league. It might take a while to do it. Obviously, they they have a lot of work to do. Um, I was so lucky to to visit the the Saudi Pro League a, a few weeks ago in Riyadh. I must just say, when talking to them, hearing about the visions for for the game and how they want to build it, uh, I'm just convinced that they are going to to continue to invest massively and they're not going to continue to invest and lose money. Obviously, yes, they are losing yeah. a lot of money now and probably the next, I don't know, three, four, five, maybe 10 years, but they want to build a league because this is about much more than just football. This is about the, the diversification of the economy which is essential for that country, so they need to, to stick to the plan. And also, this is about building a, a could say, a great a, a great country where the population can, the young population can do great things. So they need this league. This is not like like what we saw in China. It was something completely different. I believe they are going to 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 uh, yeah to good to do a good job, and eventually they're going to be profitable. But it's going to take some time. I agree. Um, we were just there for World Football Summit Asia in, in Jeddah. And that's what you would notice right out of the, bat, out of the gate. Um, their commitment to make this sustainable, to actually develop this as a key yeah. um, priority of the country. Um, yeah. It was just amazing, right? So I think, yes, it is going to take time, but they will eventually get there. You know, you don't know if they're going to become a top one, top two league, but they will get very high up in terms of valuation, performance, I'm pretty sure of it, right? Yeah, and I think you have a really good point, Jaime, that exactly that their commitment to build a sustainable league, that's what it's all about. That's the end goal. And 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 many of us in Europe, when we look at this league, we have sort of the feeling, oh, they're just spending a lot of money. They, they're mm-hmm. just breaking with all the big stars they're signing. And they are doing this, doing this for a business purpose. The long-term vision is to build something something sustainable. And I right. think we really need to remember that before we sort of uh, try to, to, to tell them that this is insane. I don't think it is. No, and, and, and it's not only off the pitch, but when you talk to them, I mean, one of the things they were saying is it doesn't really make sense to bring Cristiano Ronaldo if the local player is not going to learn how to train from him, if he's not going to 
learn from him how to become a professional. So once you start develop the quality on the field, everything else is going to trickle down, right? You're going to get more fans into the game. You're going to get more commercial revenue, sponsors, all of that. It's it's just the fly just going to start turning, right? Casper, I could have you here all day asking questions about the industry, but I mean, hey, you know, hey, I, I don't want to. I want to be respectful of your time. I just want to have a. Um, Final segment about you know your career and, and lessons that you you would share with with uh, sport industry professionals and I guess I want to start by asking um, I guess what is the moment that you're most proud of uh, during these five years that uh, of the pitch has been providing value to the industry? Uh, well, I'd say probably the most proud moment would be when we started. I mean, just doing it. Uh, uh, the fact that that mess myself we we sort of skipped our. Our good jobs, uh, yeah, with another big media in Denmark. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been having this dream for, I don't know, 20 years. I've been working on so many business plans, having all these ideas, ideas, but I never had the courage to do it. I just talked about it. I never had the guts to do it. So finally, after I turned 40, I, I did it. I mean, that that, that made me proud. Uh, obviously, it's hard, and then... And, and, uh, and then some days you 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 might ask yourself why did I do this? But but at the end of the day I love it and uh, yeah it actually make makes me proud that uh, I I finally did it. Would that be the main advice you would give any um, aspiring sport entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, I mean obviously it takes more than courage because once you 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 do it. Uh, I remember our two uh, we have two investors in the company Morton and Cern, and they told us. Uh, one of the first meetings, they said, "Okay, guys, you, you need to realize that the, once you have your own business, it's it's time consuming. It's going to sort of uh, influence all aspects of your life." And I, I remember I thought, "Yeah, yeah, okay, I know what it means to work hard. I know what it means to be sort of married to a job and to really care about your job, but it is something different." I think you need to to understand that that being an entrepreneur, having your own business. Uh, it just uh, eats you. I mean, it, it, it's really, but it's also really, really great. So I'm not complaining about that. I guess the the, the key advice would, would be to be patient. Things takes time. No, we read about all these companies that are seeing this amazing growth and within five years time, they're unicorns. That's super great. I v- wish I could do it, but but I mean, if you have, if you are patient, you can definitely build a business. But at the same time, don't be too stubborn. You need to make changes. I mean, don't fall too much in love with your original idea and, and your product because if the market are looking for something else, you need to adjust things. And we, we did that. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of some advice that other leaders in the podcast have shared, which is actually you have to enjoy the, that's the journey. That's the reward. And not, not only, you know, it's not about the destination, you know. Yeah, Um and Casper, I mean, I think you're a very good person to ask this question. Um, as you know, um, before World Football Time in Europe, we launched a rebrand. <clears throat> and the essence of that rebrand is that we need a better football industry, meaning we need a football industry that embraces innovation, that commits to excellence, that aspires to become sustainable across its three pillars, you know, financial, environmental, social. Um, if I were to ask you, how would you define the football industry that you wonder that you need in one, two sentences? How would you do it? I'd say that we we, we need a football industry that is financially sustainable and we need a football industry which is much more 
transparent about what they do and what they want to do. Yeah. Good one. Transparency. I like that. Um, and also just a different type of question that I have for you just to finish. You're a big fan of golf, as I understand it. So I was wondering if you could play a round of golf with any player in history, who would you choose and why? Yeah, uh, that, that's a tricky one because I guess, honestly, the only professional football player that I've heard of, which is really good at golf, and I'm not good at golf myself, but that is Gareth Bale. And then obviously it would be great to play a round of golf with him uh, since he's, he used to be a Spurs player. I'm a Spurs fan, so it, it would be great. Uh, to, yeah, to, I've seen his swing on YouTube. Wow. Uh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, it would be fun. They they do say, I mean, I know people who played with him and they say that he's a very good player. Well, actually, look at him, he's adding to, to compete, right? So, good choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, Casper, I want to thank you. This has been so much fun. Um, but uh, I don't want to let you go without, you know, um, asking you about any last words that you want to share with the audience. Uh, where can people learn more about you, about Off the Pitch? Um, the floor is yours. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for, for your time, Jaime, and thanks a lot for the invite. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if people want to learn more about uh, our business, yeah, it's offthepitch.com. Hopefully they, they, they can uh, read about who we are and what we do. Uh, but yeah, thanks a lot for, for inviting. It was a pleasure. And no need to thank me, Jasper. Actually, um, this is an open invitation. You can join us anytime uh, to provide a review of the industry and uh, we'll always be super happy to welcome you back. Um, and, and thank you so much. Have a great day, Casper, and thank you so much for your time. Likewise. Thanks a lot. And there you have him, Casper from Off The Pitch. Boy, that was a fun one, at least for me. I hope you enjoyed it too. There were so many interesting takeaways. Um, let's, let's see if we can summarize them quickly, all right? Um, at the end of the day, uh, when you look at the different regions of the world in terms of their evaluations, uh, first off, if we start with Europe, it's encouraging to see that there's a, a journey towards uh, becoming more professional. And, and what he mentioned there, you know, that the, the wages to revenue ratios are improving. So it, it's positive. There's still a long way to go, but it seems the trend um, is positive. No? So, so that's good to see. Um, probably this as well with the second takeaway, which is that um, it would be good to focus on, on what clubs and franchises in the United States are doing, which is basically think about um, the sport business as what it is business. Now, uh, as I said in the conversation, we talked uh, about this with Thornmish. A business has to create value and then capture value and, and focus on growing sustainably, right? And that's what they do in the United States. They, they know how to run the business. Uh, yes, it's sport, but they always focus on profitability and, and being sustainable in the long run. And then it was interesting to see how um, his thoughts about women's football, about how it's, it's critical that uh, women's football teams, it's better uh, if they let's say, start on their own and they're kind of independent. They're not being treated as a spin-off from the um, men's football clubs. And it's something that we also discussed with Adriana Cristiani back in the day. Um, so that's a lesson worth considering. And also what we discussed about Saudi. Um, and, and we were there at World Football Summit Asia speaking about this. The, the commitment that you see behind all of the institution, the entire ecosystem to actually make um, the, the Saudi Arabian um, Football League and and just develop uh, and be sustainable and, and create business opportunity. Um, it, it's just, it's remarkable, right? And, and that's something that, that um, when you compare with other markets like China, um, you didn't see it as much, right? So, so yeah, it, 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 interesting takeaway. 
And, and finally, the football he wants, I mean, could it be any other way, right? More transparent and, and focus on, on being financially sustainable, right? Anyway, guys, um, I, I don't know what you think. Uh, let, let us know if you have different takeaways. Um, if so, share it uh, on social media, reach out to us. Um, and of course, don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast on the platform of choice. It, it's a great help for us. Um, and share it with anybody that you feel can get value out of this conversation. Um, I want to thank you for tuning into this episode of the World Focal Summit podcast. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I definitely had a lot of fun and, and I really hope we can bring Casper back one day. Let me know if, if you want to if you want to see that happen. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day and we hope to see you next time. <laughs>